this time on Watchers of Tomorrow. You say you want a revolution. Well, you know, we all want to change the world. That is one of the things that I'm criticizing is that the general the generalness of it leads to that being the in fact only takeaway that positive thinking fixed climate change in two months. If we if we refi- if we reframed it not as positive thinking but positive focus, would that change your interpretation of it? Because if if you spend your entire life focused on the flaws of the world and how to fix the flaws of the world you can come away with a negativity bias with a inaccurate assessment of the actual state of the world and it is important to occasionally step back and actually look at the data trends and say yes there is there is an unconscionable amount of suck in the world and we absolutely need to fix that but on the macro scale, how are we actually doing? Are we doing better or worse than we were a year ago, five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago? I do think that we are unnecessarily biased towards being so focused on the problems of the world that we tend to assume the problems of the world are getting worse when, in fact, and by most available metrics, while the world is far from as good as it could be, it is getting better by most available metrics. Would you, would you agree with that assessment? I mean, I agree with the idea that we are focusing a bit on a lot of places where the world is going bad. And I think that one of the reasons that I found this movie kind of distasteful in a certain way is that the places where we are looking at the ways that the world is going bad are things like, you know, murder rate, general crime rate, overall healthiness, like... Places where we can look at numbers and go like, yeah, this is generally getting better than it was 10 years ago. Um, but there's a lot of other in fact, places. I'm looking at it. In fact, I'm looking at a chart right now about the global hunger, hunger index scores and how they're uh, changing over time. They're, they're improving. Quite a lot. Yeah. <laughs> but there's also other places where that's not true, like, you know, the impending climate crisis, um, general global instability and the apparent new rise of fascism that's a fun one <laughs> yeah so 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 when it a, a thought experiment i really like to ask in situations like this where people point out that here are the metrics that are improving but here are also the things that are getting worse a question i really like to ask and, and feel f- feel free to answer or not mm. answer this is to- totally voluntarily here for you is let me pose this hypothetical to you if you were going to be put into some random human life. You'd have no control over who you were, where you were born, what your age, gender, sexuality, race, wealth class. You had no control over any of that. The only thing you got to pick was the year in which you were going to be born. What year would you pick? See, I think that that, I see the point that you're making. And I think that that is a particularly white America-centric viewpoint because um, 
I'm going to speak fully from my own experiences. Like, I am a white man. I'm in a very privileged place in America. I'm a white man with a enough money to take care of themselves. This is a fairly privileged position to be in overall. But I'm also a queer man, and a lot of my friends, um, loved ones, people I know are in a very similar place with that. We are currently staring down a potential near future in which the government of the place where I live could, based entirely on things, mostly, if not entirely outside of my control, could want me and everyone that I care about dead in the next three years. And yes, there are a lot of things that are improving, and I'm not trying to discredit that reading of things. But I think that a lot of that ignores specific experiences, which are one of the things that you were arguing for in looking at, you know, how many people will be hurt by the end of the world. Like, we're kind of ignoring a lot of places where things are having problems and being told mm -hmm. somewhat explicitly that the reason that things are going bad is because I'm not optimistic enough is a little bit distasteful from that position. So that's, that's kind of why I tried to phrase the hypothetical as not you are going to be who you are, a wealthy, queer American living in Brooklyn, pick a year. That's why I tried to phrase the hypothetical as you have no control over that. It's a random life of any demographic, any wealth class, any random human life, because you are absolutely right that I, I'm, I am a straight person, um, and I fully acknowledge that today is not a great time to be a queer person uh, in America. It is, it is probably by many metrics worse than it was a year ago or even three years ago. But how does that compare to a random human life or even a random queer life at some random point in history? Like, would you rather be who you are now or would you rather be who you are now but in 1910? I think that example? that's one of the interesting things. Nin so, like... Let's take the like. I think that's interesting. I was going to answer more fully, but I think you giving an you giving just the random year gave me an interesting thought, which is um, if I was going to say who I am now, nineteen um, twenties is actually not a particularly bad time for queer people in the U.S. compared to right now. Um, okay, fantastic. <laughs> so, 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 so we say the nineteen twenties. We want to be born in the nineteen twenties. In 20 years, though, that means you're going to be living through World War II. So even n even knowing that, would you still pick to be who you are in the 1920s, knowing that there was a, knowing that there was a World War One and World War, knowing that World War World War Two and the Spanish flu and all of the catastrophes of that were in your near. But see, you future. could very much say that? that for right now, in the same kind of way, because now you're just using hindsight to basically say any particular time is or could be bad. Mm -hmm. So I would ask then to make the assessment of on the metric of, say, deaths by violence, deaths by political violence, deaths by war, or things like that, would we be better off choosing to live in the 1920s or choosing to live today, knowing nothing about who we would be? Well, right. And I 19... think an honest answer... 
Or, yeah. Sorry, 1920. Mm-hmm. Sorry, but 1920 like, versus today. 1920 was specifically because I was looking at this thing about uh, things about queer history and the general ups and downs that we're in fact lying about of how, you know, we have this idea of perpetual progress for everyone that just isn't the reality. Yeah, things are a little bit more complicated. There are you know, oh, reactions but and, and if you're saying I can't pushes forward. Like, I don't know enough about a lot of the rest of the world to be able to honestly tell you a year that I would rather be randomly born into. But if you were to say that I had just a random chance to be born into any life in the world right now, I don't know if I would honestly take that over anything else because most people in the world are not living in the global capitalist core. They're living in other places in the world that that core is you know leeching off of intentionally making worse in a lot of cases like the global south has been decimated is being hit massively with climate crises of our making has been intentionally destabilized like there are a lot of terrible things going on outside of our you know capitalist center here that most of the world is going through because a very comparatively few people are living in a position where a lot of those metrics matter. I would I would argue that those metrics always matter. They they aren't an excuse to justify the great evil that has been done by colonialism. But even in places that are outside of what you call the global capitalist core, like even in Africa, you know the the, the life expectancy in Africa today um, is. Uh, is 30 years higher than it would have been in, say, 1920. Um, so so even, even if we were saying your random life was going to be something outside of our experience as wealthy Western American Americans, I would still argue that if you wanted to maximize the odds of living a happy, healthy, long, fulfilled life, just on the statistics, you would want to pick as close to modern day as you could. And that's what Tomorrowland, it gets a lot wrong, but that is one of the things that I think it gets right, is that you need to be focused on improving the world. Never stop, never stop acknowledging the things that are wrong with the world and focusing on what we can do to fix it. But don't become so fixated on the negatives that you fail to realize that life is actually extremely good, and for most people, by the historical standards of what life was. Yeah, mortality rates kind of such. Yeah, yeah. Even, you know, just like 50 years ago. But yeah, uh, we, they are, you know, improving over time, and that's kind of nice. Yeah, we're, we're, we're literally living an entire lifetime longer than the average human was in, in 1900. That's, that's a remarkable accomplishment. It's, it is not an excuse to say that the entire world is better or that there is not still an immeasurable and inconscionable amount of suffering in the world. But it's at least an acknowledgement that the world of today is better than the world of yesterday. And I wish that our visions of the future were, as Frank said in the, in the beginning, I, I wish the future still was something we looked forward to. Maybe n- not as an idyllic, magical, perfect city on the future, because the world is never going to be idyllic and perfect, but at least as a place that through the hard work and dedication of people from all disciplines, from all backgrounds, can continue to incrementally but measurably and unstoppably improve. All right, so what do you think happened then? 
because by the arguments of this movie um, the 1950s was perfect which is also a problem that you get with a lot of this like the future used to be better sort of narrative because that's when they were envisioning the best future that is a that is a source of a lot of commentary like i have i have tried to figure out when did the future become something that uh that we stopped seeing as better rather than uh, rather than worse um and the interesting thing about it is i'm not actually able to clearly establish that that's true it may it, it, it may be the fact that it's going to get <laughs> this is going to get complicated to, it, it may be the it may be true that the future of the past was actually worse today than it was back then if that makes sense um we 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 tend to have we have a tendency to remember the optimism of the past more so than the pessimism um so i actually haven't been able to confirm that this actually does represent a real shift culturally it there's some really interesting metrics that you can track like for example um, i found a really cool analysis of when apocalyptic of, of what percentage of uh, movies were uh, were post-apocalyptic over time, and there is a definite uptick in that. Um, so that at least kind of uh, conf- agrees with uh, with Tomorrowland's hypothesis that the future went from something we idolize to something we fear. Um, but I wouldn't consider that to actually be definitive data. So I actually don't know if the future went from being something we idolize to something we fear. It certainly feels true, though. Well, what's kind um, of but interesting... But whether it actually is true or not is hard to tell. If you bring apocalyptic fiction into it, which this movie very directly wants to, uh, that's a product of exactly the same time period. Mm-hmm. Because that Yeah, there's was... a lot of great apocalyptic fiction from the Cold War. Yeah. Some, some some of the... I mean, you, 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 mentioned, uh, you mentioned Fallout. You know, that's... That's that's a modern piece of post-apocalyptic fiction, but it's entirely set in the time of the World Fair. Yeah, it's basically taking that apocalyptic aesthetic. Um, yeah. Which, you mm-hmm. know, the 50s were the age of optimism, etc., but also... At least, at least in this country. Yeah, but the first time in human history that we had to seriously grapple with the possibility that we could imminently mm-hmm. destroy the world. Yeah. It, it was the first time where the idea of an anthropogenic apocalypse was realistic rather than it being an asteroid or an alien invasion or something from outside of our own of our own or, capabilities. or a purple cloud i think the critique that i would actually take <laughs> i saw this interesting uh breakdown of um the problems with fallout 76 the the as to this point newest game in the fallout franchise that which i have not played so i I may not be able to provide useful well i didn't really play it either but it's to talk about the way that the story evolved from the earlier games to this modern iteration because the earlier fallout franchise was very anti-capitalist um critiqued the 1950s in a very tongue-in-cheek way and the entire setup of that is that early earlier society failed and any attempts to recreate that society now off of their blueprint are also doomed to fail because of, you know, that society failing in a fundamentally flawed way. Um, Fallout 76, the end point of the game is you getting to launch a nuclear weapon at a random spot on the map for fun. Yep. <laughs> so you've changed it from, like nuclear weapons and the nuclear apocalypse are a terrible endpoint of a flawed society to a fun toy 
I feel like it's it reminded of uh, uh, Nelson Munces from The Simpsons uh, sh- uh, poster of Nuke the Whales. Yeah. Which, because you got to nuke something. Which is one of the things that I feel like is possibly a modern strange misreading of post-apocalyptic fiction. And it's not even really the pessimism of it. It's the fun that people are trying to have now. Is the idea that I would live through the apocalypse and have a great time on the other side as opposed to a way that a lot of post-apocalyptic and dystopian fiction was presented which is a warning dystopian fiction especially like 1984 is not an aspirational novel it's there to say it's very much a don't do yeah, this it's like that don't and, build the uh the the uh, the, mm-hmm. the the death uh, vortex and uh, cyberpunk which is one of the things that's getting more and more relevant like those those genres are very much a if we do not change something here is what's going to happen it's not yes, a look but, at this but look it's, how it's great not, this could be but it's not here is what here is what is going to happen. It's here is what I, a specific creator with a specific aesthetic and a specific fiction and a specific background in fiction, believe will be a compelling world to tell a story. Like I don't think I don't think most cyberpunk stories are actually written as cautionary tales. I'm sure they I'm sure some are, but I think most cyberpunk stories are written because they are a interesting world in which to tell a compelling and visually interesting story well possibly that's changed recently but the one of the things that that people are misreading in cyberpunk is the punk part of it because mm-hmm. punk in itself is a anti-capitalist very political movement that is saying let like there's a lot of stuff wrong in society and let's fuck it up a bit time to uh, get the bad out and start bashing <laughs> So take that, Margaret Thatcher. <laughs> but there's but there's two there's kind of two ways to to use that kind of storytelling mechanism of society is fucked up, let's start bashing it. You can you can use that punk aesthetic as a message, as a way to say, look at your society, look look at this society, it's fucked up, look at these people, start bashing it. Now look for things in your own society that are a- allegorically similar, go start bashing them. Or you can use that aesthetic as simply a useful way to tell a compelling story. Not all apocalyptic stories are commentaries on the on, on the real world. Many are. Many of the best ones are. But you can tell. You can have cyberpunk. You can have apocalypse. You can have dystopia in ways that are purely settings for interesting stories, without them necessarily being a commentary on the real world. Would you agree with that? I agree that people. I agree that there are places where they're trying to do that, which is like, you know, the critique of the Fallout 76 critique that I was just mm-hmm. that I was just yeah. um, repeating. Um, that is a fundamental, not only misuse, but a misreading of what you're doing, because that's um, doing almost the same thing that I feel is my problem with this movie, which is trying to ignore your aesthetic backdrop as something that can be apolitical because the the one thing that's been danced around a little bit when we've been discussing this movie is that particular future like i agree with you that things are a lot better now than they used to be and that we can focus on the negative in a lot of ways 
but saying here is our nice aspirational future of the 1950s. That's why I said what went wrong. Like, not that what went wrong with our imaginings of the future, but according to the text of this film, imagining that future is what should keep everything moving smoothly and well and avoid apocalypses. And we're kind of facing down a lot of problems right now that one would imagine would have been avoided if you had continued imagining that future in a way that the movie is suggesting. So so, so, so are, are you asking what in the text of the movie caused Tomorrowland to go from being the open community that was going to start inviting people into a closed society? Are you asking like in the text of the movie what happened there? I think that it's there? both. We didn't get it in the text of the movie, which then engenders the question of, if what the movie is positing is true, like that didn't happen in our real world. You mean if the future no longer being a place to look forward to, but a place to fear, if that actually happened? Well, no. see, the future that it's saying was imagined is this retro-futuristic 1950s vision of the future, which mm-hmm. we all agree was present at the time. Which means that if the thing that this movie is positing is accurate, it should have gone from then to now without any particular problems because that's when they were imagining that future. So if everyone was imagining that future, they should have been doing the thing that the movie is saying to be doing, which means everything should have turned out great. So if you're asking why in the movie did the future become something bad, I think the answer to that is because we don't have a story otherwise. Because in our world, in the real world, the future is not something that most people look forward to. But I'm also saying that... I'm also saying that texturally, if you agree with the message of the film, we need to critique why historically the message that the film is saying will work didn't work. Like, in our actual real world, not just in the context of the movie. The movie is positing that having a optimistic vision of the future should solve a lot of problems that don't seem to have been solved by the 1950s having an optimistic version of the future. I think I would say having an optimistic vision of the future solves more problems and has solved more problems than having a apocalyptic dystopic mindset. Um, the problems that we have solved between the 1950s and today would have not been solved or taken longer to solve if people were of the mindset that there is no point to solving these problems, to doing the hard work, to inventing the technologies, to solving the structural problems because apocalypse is coming i think that people's response good sorry i think that that's still running into a a white centric reading or a privileged centric reading i guess i could say because i'm a little uncomfortable with the suggestion being put forward in there that if societal progress is dependent on a optimistic vision of the future then a lot of the stuff that did happen that we could count as societal progress socially, like the civil rights movement, was done by people who were completely left out of any optimistic version of the future. 
And even they, th that is absolutely true, but they didn't take a suboptimal view of the future as... Acceptable. Exactly, as acceptable. Because the, the, the perfect vision of the future in the 1950s is not perfect. That, is, that, that, that has been dissected to no end. The idyllic vision of the 1950s, as the 1950s saw it, was incre incredibly white, incredibly America-centric, um, and in no way addressed many of the worst problems that were present in the 1950s. But the people who did the hard work to make the actual future of the 70s and 80s and today so much better than it was in the 1950s wouldn't have done so if they saw that quote-unquote idyllic future of the 50s as acceptable and unchangeable. Um, and, it, and it's a good thing that they didn't see that because mm -hmm. otherwise the future would have stayed unimproved. And I don't see any reason to think that that's less true today. The vision that we have of the future today is an imperfect one. I would say the vision that we have of the future today is one that is not better than the present. I think most people's on aggregate average view of the future is not one that the world gets progressively better. Um, I disagree with that personally. I think the world is continuing to improve and will continue to improve, but I think it would improve faster if people's default position was that the future is not fixed, it is not out of our control, and any small contribution, any little change, any one pin can branch out and improve the future for everybody in ways that might not happen if your mindset was one of fatalism. I think what's interesting is I would argue exactly the opposite point. Like, not about fatalism, because fatalism is its own issue that... Um, I think we are getting into, if you look at, say, our current rash of doomsday cults and etc. But I would say that, the re that one of the core driving principles that you can look at for times of mass social change, like the civil rights movement, wasn't because people were finding the future more or less optimistic is because they found the present untenable and needing to change your circumstances in the present is a very different thing than imagining any kind of prospective future what you're basically saying is don't get so pessimistic that you don't think anything can change but there is a large difference in saying us fairly privileged white people Ima don't imagine that things can't improve and someone who is living in like, so, like a non-white person living in 1950s America where your only particular choice is to change things because the present that you find yourself living in is an untenable position. Do you think that the film makes that pretty explicit in the way it shows the closing montage? Because the original Tomorrowland, the one that we see in the Pinvitation sequence, the vision of, of the 1950s, is kind of different than the one that is implied by the closing montage. The people who they're giving pins to are 
from all walks of life, from all classes and levels of privilege. Like we see him, we, we see them giving pins to, um, you know, a, a Haitian refugee who is planting trees in a in a bomb hole to a a lawyer in Hong Kong, or sorry, a, a judge in Hong Kong, um, a hiker in the Pacific Northwest, a a kid artist who was playing his guitar as a street busker in Japan. It's an acknowledgement that the the future as portrayed in the 1950s was inadequate I, and the future of today is a better one because it includes people from all of these various backgrounds. I think Would that's difficult that the, the movie to makes say. That very explicit? I don't think they do make it very explicit because of the Pinvitation sequence itself being a 1980s and 90s diversity commercial. Like one of the cent one of the central let's say characters in the ad sequence is an attractive south asian woman who is like the poster astronaut which is kind of exactly the same thing that we do now when you want to say look at our tech diversity which, well, within the text of the movie, we don't actually know if that's what tomorrowland was that could have been as you say a a advertisement without an actual reflection of what Tomorrowland was, because we have we have no evidence that what happened in the invitation sequence in the movie is actually what they were. The only the only certainty we have is what we see of Tomorrowland in David Nix's era and what Tomorrowland is trying to become in the closing montage. Which is, as you say, all speculation. So if we only go off of what the movie is showing us, we barely see anyone in Tomorrowland the first time you see it. We see this probably fictional, but who knows how fictionalized version of Tomorrowland in the Pinvitation, and we see essentially post-apocalyptic Tomorrowland at the end, with absolutely no textual explanation of any of it. So I agree that it's showing them like drawing people from all walks of life, which is which is a better version of the future. But since they still haven't done a lot in my mind to disavow the idea that they're still just picking special people, they've just kind of changed where the line of special people is. They've gone from special people are only white people to special people can come from all walks of life. But that is still dealing with the central dilemma of we've just picked out a bunch of special people who are going to live here separate from society and do our own thing. Mm -hmm. Do you remember the uh, the villain in Brad Bird's first Incredibles movie, Syndrome? Remember his most famous line? Mm -hmm. When everyone's super, no one will be. It's it's explicitly a line that he gives to the villain of his other story is is the belief that if everyone is special, no one is because I because I don't think he believes that, and I don't think the film portrays that. I think the thing it's trying to show is that specialness, specialness is again, it's like in Ratatouille, um, a great not not everyone can be a great artist, but a great artist can come from anywhere. Does that does that make sense? It does makes that sense. Apply to what you're seeing here, but I think that that's the central problem is the thing that you're saying the movie is espousing is an inspirational viewpoint. Anyone can achieve greatness. But that particular message, even from Ratatouille and The Incredibles, is 
maybe everyone can achieve greatness, but most people won't. And the general idea that's being put forth is it's kind of their fault, or it's kind of because they didn't have it in them, some other reason that's still marking out people as special, where the thing that you're saying you're taking away from the movie, which is a much better message than, than I'm seeing it present, is that anyone can be inspired to be special. But I just don't think that that's really something that the movie is being able to explicitly say. I think that as a reading, it's a very good message to take away. I just disagree that it's done enough to make that the <clears throat> default message of the film. I think I think I can agree with that. I would just come back to the to the to the statement that I made before, which is that I think the reason it doesn't do that, I think the reason the movie doesn't go all the way in showing the results of this new Tomorrowland is because if it did that, it wouldn't leave us the audience with the understanding that we are being tasked with building it. If it showed the movie going all the way, we would leave the theater saying, "What a beautiful story, what's next?" rather than "What a beautiful story." I'd like to create what's next. Let's see, it's not really saying you are tasked with building it, you, the random person in the theater. It's saying one of these random special people is tasked with building it. Hmm. I, Kaplan, I Kaplan I you could be that special person. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I definitely didn't feel that way coming out, coming out of the movie. I thought that the, the movie was saying, the movie was saying to its entire audience that Anyone has the ability to be invited to Tomorrowland, metaphorically, but it doesn't. But but a necessary prerequisite is a belief in the improvability of the world. Because I absolutely do think that even if you are talented, driven, inspirational, etc., you can fail to make an impact on the world if you assume that your talents will be wasted. If you assume that even if you are all the things the movie is inspiring you to be, but you assume that your talents cannot be impactful, that absolutely can leave someone in a position where they will make no impact. Belief that you cannot make an impact is a poison to actually making an impact, no matter how talented, driven, or capable you are. I, th I think that's a fair statement. But I still think that they are, they and you in this are still essentially saying we need to pick out the special ones just because but what is but that's but who the is thing. It saying the specials are yeah they're saying they are saying the specials are the ones with optimism but most mm -hmm. of the way through the movie the titular character as it were who who uh embodies the optimism Titular is not the right word at all <laughs> but the the main character who is meant to embody the optimism just is we don't actually like that could even have been a way to get that message across better if she personally had to struggle with some version of maintaining our optimism starting more pessimistic and becoming optimistic later as a way to change and that making her one of the special ones as it stands now as far as we know there is just something innate about her that made her immune to the pessimism machine and that's why things were able to change there were actually a couple of deleted scenes that yeah, went out of the way to establish casey as um, someone who was kind of teetering on the brink into falling into the blackness of pessimism but they don't count because they got cut and that is that is i think to the movie's detriment because um, yeah, so the, the original say. 
Go, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, there's a whole, you know, you mentioned the, uh, the you know, uh, subplot with the uh, the mom dying and all that. You know, that could have been a very key portion in, you know, how she confronted her despair, her, her uh, you know, uh, you know, impulse to give up in, on the future, mm-hmm. uh, but decided, no, I'm not going to let this, uh, you know, tear me down. This is terrible. And I'm sad because, you know, she's left. But... I'm going to keep pushing forward and trying for a better future because, well, that's what I want to see. Yeah, the movie does a bad job of setting Casey up as being a pessimist on her way to optimism. The best it does is it sets her up as being a teenage rebel, someone who, someone who has no direction but isn't at risk of falling into pessimism. I agree the movie the movie does a bad job. I think that that's very so, interesting to hang it on that, like, I didn't, like deleted scenes don't count as we all agree so the movie that we got wasn't making that message as well as it could but um the cancer subplot that they could have had is actually kind of interesting to me because um one of the things that i had read before in here um that was talking about their optimism and uh, i very much agree with the views on optimism that are presented is um barbara oh damn it how do i say this name streisand (laughs) aaron aaron rich i think um a book called bright-sided which is about america's obsession with optimism as a culture and one of the key stories in there that that she said got got her thinking on this as a path is Um, she is a cancer survivor when she was going through cancer treatment all of the like support groups and and people talking to you about about going through cancer say how much you have to keep up an optimistic viewpoint and how you need to just fight all the time keep up your optimism it's it's literally the one thing that can be healthy and keep you alive etc toxic positivity yeah and she was very upset at the idea that she had cancer because it's an upsetting thing and everyone Mm -hmm. said like well you can't know why you have cancer it's just one of those things like stop focusing on the negative be positive about it and and make yourself better but actually turns out she had at some earlier point been giving a medication that was known to have cancer risks so in fact we could have known why Mm -hmm. she had cancer and it possibly (laughs) could have been prevented and you know that's something that gets that can get lost when you are saying only focus on positive things and which i why why i think it's important to make the distinction between default positivity and rational optimism there i i because you you are 100 percent right positivity can be a toxic and unhealthy trait the 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 people who the people who refuse to acknowledge that there are bad parts of life or that the the world has bad parts of it um are people who are blind to suffering and are self-delusional so yes i i i i i completely agree with your with your thesis here that positivity can be dangerous just as just as dangerous as pessimism and i think the antidote to that though isn't isn't better isn't less negativity or less positivity it's data-informed world perspectives. It's replacing, to the greatest extent possible, 
a vibes-based evaluation of the state of the world with a data-based data assessment of the world. But that's still... See, that gets into a really interesting point when you're dealing with your magic MacGuffin machine here. <laughs> because as far as they know, that is a 100% accurate data-driven view of the world. Except they don't, actually. It's just da because da what is David Nix's response when he sees that his view of the world, that it is 100% and inevitable? What is his response when that is challenged by the flicker? Yeah, we get into he, some sort of thing there he where knocks, he's like, we have, like, he ref yeah. He, he refuses to believe it. He knocks Frank out and refuses to accept this new data into his worldview. Which... I feel like is in fact one of the places that it got kind of confused because we don't know what like we're saying that the flicker was caused by optimism um, because of this it was caught it was caused by someone refusing to accept the inevitability but that gets into a weird cyclical thing there because they made a data-driven view of the world that they then went, well, this is what the data is telling us, and it's inevitable. And then someone said, oh, what if it's not, though? And that made the data change. But I think it's, I think it's more that they, I mean, th th this, this is open to interpretation. Your interpretation is just as valid as, 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 as mine is in this matter, because the, the movie doesn't make it clear. But I think it's more that they, um, they started with a data-driven perspective on the world, but failed to update their priors and let the the inevitability substitute for a willingness to update one's worldview as the situation changed. I think that the problem that they actually hit is again they're they're using the wrong method to tell the wrong story because the sci-fi nature of this world that they've presented doesn't make pessimism the problem it makes inaction and hoarding of technology the problem. He saw... A, I, think, I think that's accurate. He saw a yep. data-driven <laughs> version of the world that said the world will end in some unspecified way. And he said, well, fuck them, they deserve it because I can't change their minds. Instead of, we have just all manner of future tech here. We could probably do something about this ourselves individually. Like, I, individually, as just the head of this town, could probably fix any problem that this is going to be. You're, you're saying the villain made the mistake that made them the villain. <laughs> but, yes. <laughs> I, I guess this, this maybe uh, touches upon uh, my earlier uh, comment about, uh, you know, uh, can they actually uh, uh, change the, uh, you, know, you know, change the world, you know, beyond their city? Uh, yeah, I wasn't necessarily talking about the technology because they obviously have that, but the deployment of the technology mm -hmm. is a big question in terms of, all right, so you have all this stuff that can change the world for the better. How do you get it out and to the people's, into the people's hands uh, that will make best use of it to prevent this uh, horrible future? And, and that's very apropos because technological optimism has an over-bias towards finding technological solutions when the problem is not a technical one, it's a logistics one or a systemic yeah. one. Like, the the problem with world hunger is not that we haven't developed enough food, it's that we don't have the ability or the financial it methods 
to distribute all of that food to who needs it. Um, which is why I like that the ending montage of the pin distribution doesn't just show inventors. The World Fair left the impression that the only people who were being offered pins were technological inventors, people who were competing for the, for the, uh, for the invention $50. Whereas the closing montage acknowledges that in order to make the vision of Tomorrowland a reality, you need to not just solve the technological problems. You aren't just inviting the automotive engineer, the, uh, the wind farm technician, the, uh, the physics professor. You aren't just inviting those people. But you need to also invite in the judges, the on-the-ground aid workers, the people who don't just understand, who, the people who see a problem as more than just saying, let's invent a new technology, but the people who see a problem and say, let's figure out what systemic obstruction there is to this technology being adopted or to this problem being solved. I think that there's certain ways in which that actually makes the message of the movie worse. Because if you have a large structural problem with this world in the sci-fi future utopia that, you know, we aren't being shown. We're not being shown what this structural problem is. It seems fairly obvious there's something. But they haven't given us enough information on how this world functions to know what this structural problem might be but it is something that we know probably isn't the same structural problem that we have because as was stated before by the robots that's kind of the whole point of the thing is to be away from all of the structural problems of our society and be able to do your own thing and invent all of your stuff and your cool sci-fi gadgets and etc so that leaves us with the thing that's wrong with this utopian world where all of the cool technology and and optimistic future can happen is the wrong people are there which again mm. gets you back to mm. the right people the special people mm. have to be the ones to do this thing it's kind of that Kep same sort of you know Kep, when you were hitting on something very, very cool that is handled in the deleted scenes. Keep keep going. I want to see it's where like, you take this and see if you take it to the yeah, right spot. It's the same kind of criticism that you have of a lot of neoliberal ideas of keep the structure the same but change the people who are in charge and that will fix everything. So this is not at all clear in the movie, but the the book, the novelization of this, uh, of this movie actually does explain what was the structural problem that brought Tomorrowland to the state that it is when we see it, when we visit it. Um, and you're absolutely right. You 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 have kind of in, you, you have read between the missing lines of um, of what of, of how this story answers it. Um, and the the thing that ultimately consumed Tomorrowland in the story is they stopped devoting all of their resources to solving problems and started devoting all of their resources to developing the monitor. Um, if if you watch the deleted scenes, there's 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 an extended scene on the train where they're where they're heading to the monitor where they talk about this, where it's basically the reason that Tomorrowland is the way we see it is is because the monitor takes all the power. There's no power left to do anything to focus on solving any problems, other than look at the future with the monitor and try to avert that future. So yeah, you've you. You, you you hit on it exactly that the problem with Tomorrowland, 
both the metaphorical and the cinematic Tomorrowland is that they they failed to correctly identify the problem and became fixated on a single technical solution. I suppose it's sort of like you build the world's largest hammer and you have to use it. Mm -hmm. And thus, you know, you only use it on the uh, the problem that looks like an, uh, the world's largest nail. Yeah, it's 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 like we all know people like this. They they they, they see the solution to any problem as being their pet solution. Um, like like the we we all know the person who as soon as you start talking about climate change immediately says the problem is the, the solution is nuclear power, more nuclear power, more nuclear power, more nuclear power, more nuclear power, and refuses to acknowledge that, no, the solution to climate change is multifaceted, and there is no one solution to it. You need to make thousands of changes in order to solve the problem. It's the same thing with any level of systemic injustice. They say, well, there's, there's just one thing we need to change, and this will go away, when that's not how real problems work. Real problems get solved by the comp by not by one singular great thinker having an idea it's always by thousands of people working incredibly hard the composition of which is enough to move the needle see so without any of the additional text that they would have needed to added to here the only thing that you really can take away from them continuing to talk about how the future used to be optimistic and now it is not is this version of the optimistic future that they keep showing us which is an inherently technologically based one so the real only takeaway that you can have from what the movie is presenting to you is technology is the thing that we need to be able to fix this including the fact that our main optimistic character is shown to be technically minded it's one of her only main character traits that we see is that she's good with machinery and figuring things out it never says though that she knows how technology works though it's she knows how stuff works um and it's a when she's on her own when it's just casey notice how those talents get deployed they don't the fact that she knows how stuff works only means she knows how to disable cranes it's not being put towards towards solving any real world problems until she meets someone like frank who has the motivation to solve real world who has the talent to solve real world problems but lacks the optimism that Casey has. It's a, it's an acknowledgement show, shown in miniature of what we see in macroscopic at the end uh, at, at at the end montage that you can't do it alone. You can't solve the world's problems on your own. But if you acknowledge that the world's problems can be solved and cooperate with the with people who agree, you can move the needle. Well, I think this is a. Uh been a, a very lengthy discussion so far i don't want oh to yeah really I, i've had i've had so much fun tonight thank you yeah. thanks, thank you so much guys this was this was fantastic yeah yeah i, I don't want to be cutting off uh, too soon because this is actually great stuff and i'm just like yeah uh i'm kind of nodding along <laughs> here uh so i haven't been really interjecting a whole lot uh but uh, i you know i kind of wanted to draw back a little bit uh to the i guess the vision of the the the, the future the monitor uh, device there uh the you know, it, it, it is sort of like an evil version of Epcot, so, uh, which I mentioned in the, uh, the synopsis. 
but uh, it, it also now, now you, you know after you mentioned uh, there's you know lead scenes about uh, you know you know cancer plot lines and things like that, it, and how this thing is very much drawing all the power from the city, that it is effectively a cancer on the city itself as well. You know, not just a a, a thing that is you know you know you know putting negativity into the uh, you know the our world, but you know is something that is malignant on the city and preventing it from thriving into meeting its promise into evolving into uh, a thing that is able to uh, provide solutions not just doom and gloom all the time mm-hmm. it is a it is a monoculture it is the one it, it is tomorrowland becoming fixated on just one thing as a solution to everything yeah it's, it's almost as bad as that uh, time i made uh, infinite numbers of paper clips <laughs> i think that that's <laughs> that's one of the things in here is um no, I, yes, the the dome, the monitor, is social media, let's say. It's the mm-hmm. metaphor for doom scrolling. That's what the thing is doing constantly, running through different apocalyptic scenarios on an endless loop. And they're yep. saying, as you, if you don't do that, you can have an optimistic vision of the future that can change things in a non-specific way. But I still think that what's not getting addressed in this is the systemic nature of a lot of things that are happening because they're basically saying optimism can take care of that in a non-specified way because if you can imagine it being better it can be but we still haven't really gotten into the central problem with systemic issues of them being very very difficult to shift in that kind of way because as I was saying before, like to use the, an act, the actual real world example, next year in the US, there's a definite possibility that the way an election goes is going to def- de- decide the actual real tangible future of a decent segment of the population that has been systemically disempowered for years. And because of a lot of those factors, let's even say that every single disempowered person comes together to try to do something about that by voting by having the by having the protests by having a lot of things that we've had happen already like there's still little to nothing that they could particularly do about that because of the way the system has been set up to empower that possibility and that you're right will have very tangible negative impacts on them and the solution that this movie is saying is to think positively about it. I think what this movie is saying is that optimism is a necessary but not sufficient criteria in order to succeed. Except that it didn't. Like, I see where you're trying to take that away from the thing. I mean, not trying, sorry, that was a bit rude. But I see where you're taking that away from the message. But you are... In inherently putting something additional into what the movie is doing because it explicitly says in the text of the film that here are a massive series of apocalypses that we have predicted with our future machine are going to happen and they don't because we made people optimistic all right we can imagine that that optimism made them go out and change whatever number of things but 
the only thing the movie told us happened was people got more optimistic. The only thing that we see happen is people stopped being made pessimistic. It was it was the cessation of a harmful action, not the imposition of a beneficial. Okay, one, but same, which, which is yeah. a which is a necessary step in order for people to improve. The but world. same criticism if, then. If your issue is that I keep saying that it made them optimistic, fine. It's the only thing that the movie tells us. You're right. I'm putting something on it too. The thing that the movie tells us is it stopped making people actively pessimistic, but. It still doesn't do anything to show us any level of anything else happening. Like we can yeah, definitely the, the try, specifically. we can definitely try to infer that, but it still did basically nothing to show us that. We in fact barely see the real world again. Do, do you think that the closing montage does that effectively? I, I, I guess you, you clearly don't think the closing montage does that effectively, but do you do you think the closing montage was at least attempting to do that? The closing montage was possibly... See, the closing montage couldn't really because it hadn't set up anything different before. Like, as far as we know, the one and only difference we are seeing in this world as compared to our own is that they have decided to dismantle this one launch platform. Um, a lot of the stuff that they show at the end is things like people working on renewable energy and doing art and a lot of other things that we have absolutely no reason to believe weren't happening already. Because the world that they present to us is similar enough to our own that unless we are told something else is happening, we can only make the natural assumption that most of the things that are happening here now are also happening there. I think we can make the inference, though, as a matter of what the movie chooses to focus on, because we don't see legislators legislating, artists arting, and uh guitarists playing music we don't see that kind of stuff the entire time that casey is in the real world before the destruction of the monitor i think you're right in inferring that because it's our world we should assume that those things are still happening yeah. well because she but spends, as a matter of what the movie chooses to focus she on, spends I think most it's of her time outside of the monitor either in prison or in the woods i don't think so there's her entire time in school. There's the time when she's on the bus and the e everyone around her is dead-eyed or reading Toxicosmos, that franchise that keeps popping up as a metaphor for the apocalypse. There's the time when um, th th there's th 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 there's more than just the time that she spends in prison. I mean, that's just what being on the bus is like. I don't know when the last time you were <laughs> on the bus was. <laughs> I just think that well, like it's probably one of these million rewrite structural problems but like we can only deal with the movie that we were presented mm -hmm. because if the one key difference that they tell us is they're dismantling the space program we then at the end don't really get much idea of how not doing that would change anything I don't think it's causative. I think the space programming and the dismantling so, of the pad, of the launch pad, is meant to be taken as just the most visible metaphor of... A symptom, but not the uh, cause. Sure, sure. A, a symptom. Like, if, if you fix the future, 
then this will happen. Which they not this is they don't really ahead. link the two. Like I get that a lot of stuff sees NASA and space exploration as a byword for optimistic future. But they didn't really do a ton to link those two things. They have like one thing about a rocket, and it's the only thing that we really hear in Tomorrowland about space stuff. And as far as we can tell, they just do it for fun. Well, how 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 would you visually represent? Would you pick a different visual metaphor for the success of the aversion of the apocalypse? Like like think about the the montage in the monitor when Casey is Google Earth hopping around and seeing all these visual signs that the apocalypse is happening. I think the thing how is, would, they, how would you do the opposite of that? Because it, that's the, the only film. part of a pessimistic present that they show is this doom scrolling machine. It's completely disconnected from any vision that we have of how this world may or may not differ from our own. And a lot of the stuff that they show at the end, which is possibly a criticism of the thing itself, if you're saying that that's meant to show a vision of an, op of an optimistic future or a non-pessimistic future, like most of the stuff that they show happening at the end is stuff that's happening now. Like people, people building and repairing wind turbines and doing art and playing guitar, etc. Like that's something but that now, is now happening right now in the real now, world. But now it has a chance to work. Because because art, ca art can't a, save the art can't save the world if the nukes are flying. But only because a robot chose that person as artist enough to do that. Like you could, they didn't set up anything that was different about this world before that like if you're saying that showing someone repairing a wind turbine is representative of this because we prevented the apocalypse but like that's the disconnect we have a bunch of static where the apocalypse happens we have no idea what was leading up to it we have no idea what prevented it other than not doom scrolling right taking so you want more specificity. Yeah. I don't think, like, I agree yeah. that not having the specificity is a necessary part of the message, but it also is fundamentally undermining to its own message. Do you think it would have been a better film if it had been more specific about the cause of the apocalypse and what it took to prevent it? I think it would have been a compelling film, but I don't think it would have had as broad and impactful of a message as it was but trying to shoot is, for. But the thing is, it is specific in its non-specificity and that then recommends a specific solution which is the thing that i'm critiquing like you are saying that that is that that specific solution should be broadened and expanded upon in a way that the movie isn't communicating it's because it's non-specific because... about the apocalypse message like, one of the things that I think you could do to possibly fix it a little bit is to show the opposite stuff happening while she's traveling around the country. They have a whole section where she's traveling around the country. You could show them driving by a wind farm in disrepair or mm. people not, you know, people around sitting around next to instruments and not playing them. People being depressed or pessimistic. They do try to show that, but it's meant to show that people were being susceptible to the monitor. So, for example, the security guard uh, in the uh, 
in the shack to the launch pad. Uh, he's playing an apocalyptic video game. The uh, the tender at the store, the, the, the first robot at Blast from the Past, she's watching uh, an atomic bomb on the TV. She's watching a post-apocalyptic movie. They do try to do that in the movie, but I agree. It could, it could have been done better, especially because they're not trying to show what, as you say, is symptoms of a world gone wrong that Tomorrowland then fixes. Yeah, see, they're... What, what they're actually showing is this is the monitor at yeah. work. And because they're not showing any symptoms at all, even non-specific sort of general, you know, malaise symptoms, the only two things that we are told is everyone is being pessimistic because of this thing that in some way causes an apocalyptic event. And then them not being pessimistic fixes said apocalyptic event. Because improving the world requires as a necessary first step a belief that the world can be improved. But because they didn't show us anything else happening, the takeaway that you can very easily get from that is not first step, but only step. So we need a sequel. <laughs> they could have even said, they could have even like, moved the damn apocalypse like the fact that the the main problem that i think is incurring here is the fact that they did actively prevent an impending apocalypse by making everyone less pessimistic about it and that is the only thing that we're shown happening if this was a even slightly further out apocalypse and the ending message of the movie was now we have a chance and let's get the people together who are going to start working towards it. I think it would have been a very different message than we made people less pessimistic and that fixed it. We made, I, I read it as we made people, we stopped the thing that was making people pessimistic and that allows them to fix it. But either way, like the there not being a thing that was fixed it's such a central part of the movie that is left blank the only thing that happened was people being less pessimistic from our viewpoint we saw nothing going wrong and then we saw nothing being fixed the only thing textually the movie tells us is happening is people are pessimistic on one end of the apocalypse and not on the other and I think that's because if we had shown everything getting fixed, we would have left the film with we would have left the film seeing it as a self-contained story about avoiding the end of the world, without taking it as a command to go out and do it. But we did avoid I think it. This, I think textually this, in the well, movie, I, I we did also, already avoid it. Well, I, this also kind of gets back to that earlier thing uh, about you know if you, you you know having too much confidence that everything's going to be great. Uh, is also a problem because then you are also not being active about it. But without the monitor, you know, being existing anymore, you don't know what the future is going to be. Mm -hmm. And so you don't know what it's going to be, you know, what its new readout is given, you know, its post-destruction uh, status. Uh, we are in uncharted territory. We have to make our way forward. Um, and I'm also going to maybe suggest that we uh, wrap this up a little bit because I think you guys are kind of, hitting the same uh, points over and over again at this point. And I uh, don't want to be much of a, a, a mediator here. Uh, so, uh, I'll, you know, final thoughts on this particular part of it. Go. Only to say, I it. <laughs> uh, oh, 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 only to say that um, 
yeah, this th- this movie is is full of flaws, and and it's it's it's. I, I don't even know if I'd enjoy talking about it so much if it, if these flaws had been fixed. I think I would have just enjoyed it without feeling the need to talk about it so much because it's it's easier to love something when it's perfect. It's harder to love something when it is imperfect and you see what it could have been. And I'm sure that wasn't the intention of this movie. Like like we talked about it, it, it is it is Brad Bird's uh, least successful film from a financial and uh, audience approval point of view. So I'm I'm sure I'm sure he would have and I would have preferred the movie to have fixed these very serious structural problems and been a lot clearer with its message. Um, but partially just the combination of where I was in my life when it came out and where where the world seemed like it was and where we know the world was heading um, in 2015 when it came out, now with the benefit of hindsight. I, I still can't um, find it in myself to condemn the movie for its many, many faults, um, simply because, as, as, as Isaac pointed out earlier on, um, trying to accomplish what it did and failing at it is in many ways, I think, more admirable than just being another run-of-the-mill um, film in the same theme of the kind of films that were coming out around that time. Even if it had been a good movie, I think it would have stood out less. It would have um, it would have failed to leave as much of an impact if it had fixed some of those things that um, that make it such a unique and interesting film to dissect. I think that that does get into probably why this is becoming an unresolvable argument because so much of the film being essentially missing or put on the cutting room floor or lost in rewrites the message is in where you fill in the blanks because it's all you can really do so it's probably saying a lot more about some of the belief system of the person watching than any particular message that the movie itself is really getting across. Because if you just look at the things that are only in the film, it's getting across very little, which is kind of where we're getting into arguments. Is it? And I, and I guess uh, my uh, you know, ending uh, uh, bit on this is that, uh, yeah, it's a, you know, a flawed movie. Uh, I enjoyed it, as I mentioned before. Um, but to, you know, to pick a... I guess message of it is is workable given what is there, but it would have been more solid and more obvious what it's going for uh, if there had been some some of the holes uh, uh, filled in. But I don't think the holes being there are necessarily uh, to its benefit in terms of making it a more memorable film. Um, so I guess I'm going to both disagree with both of you in some fashion. <laughs> Uh, that there, there is a, a lot of good stuff here that could very much have been, you know, repackaged, rearranged, uh, smoothed out to uh, hit the themes better and to, you know, even with like little things to, you know, tighten it up and, you know, maybe the, uh, you know, the you know, you know like, for example, as I said before, you know, the, the monitor's gone and you just don't know what the future is. Maybe in its last sort of moments there, you know, we flash over to uh, Frank's, uh, you know, countdown death clock there, and the numbers start going up very quickly, but they don't go away. So there might still be apocalypse out there, but we, you know, it's now going to be possible to avert it as opposed to, 
you know, it's going to happen in just so many days. So, eh. Uh, so, you know, there, there's, there's options here in order to, you know, make it a better film, but it is still, I guess, workable for me as it is. So shall I talk about Leibniz? <laughs> <laughs> well, this yes, is, no. this <laughs> has been an incredible amount of fun. Yeah. Well, uh, for guys, thank you so for uh, having me on. For this to be listenable at all, it might have to wind up being a two-parter. So anyway, um, yeah. now we can do well, the palate well, cleanser well, get, thing. Not wet. Yeah. Not, not, not yet. Not, there's one more thing I wanted to mm. bring up. The International Geophysical Year. That's right. That's right. 1964. <laughs> 1964 well, wasn't just about Sputnik. Yeah, well, well there, you know, there's, you know, it's, technically there's the whole uh, multiple international polar years, but there, you know, the, the IGY is, uh, uh, is also known as the in, third international polar year. It was basically like, we're going to start doing science together, like internationally, uh, because World War II is over and we can like talk to each other and cool stuff like that. So like, let's start getting started here, guys. Oh, and also, so they am, did. Also, what am I saying? Sputnik was 57, not 64. <laughs> what am I saying? Never mind. Okay. Well, you know, the, you know, 57 was uh, the International Geophysical Year. Uh, so that actually predates the, uh, the uh, World's Fair uh, uh, point there uh, by a few years uh, in terms of the timeline of the movie. But uh, the this movie in terms of its... Uh, sort of feel aesthetics and things like that reminds me a lot of the song IGY uh, which is by a, a, a fellow named uh, uh, Donald Fagan uh, spelled differently than your last name they all um, are yeah. <laughs> uh, that uh, I listened to a lot when I was a kid and so I guess a certain part of my own previous old version of the future uh, vision of the future kind of came out of that song and a lot of the other sort of medias I was exposed to at the time but, you know, it, it is very much a, a tune about, you know, a, a, you know, a streamlined world. There's, you know, cool stuff going on. There's trains under the ocean. Uh, there's, uh, you know, you know, computers that are able to solve all our big problems. Uh, and everything's pretty cool like that. Uh, and so, you know, it, 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 I guess it kind of hit back on me in that sort of uh, nostalgia a little bit. So that might be one of the reasons, uh, you know, I, I feel about it as I do. Um, but I just kind of wanted to bring that up because that's a song I like and has some interesting stuff because it was named after the IGY, the International Geophysical Year, uh, which, you know, has a bunch of science stuff attached to it. Also Spucknik and, you know, all that. But yeah, there's a lot of uh, stuff that was kind of going on there. And uh, it's like, let's go... Uh, study space let's go get some uh meteorological maps let's go uh do some uh earth science study auroras oceanography seismology all sorts of cool stuff and a bunch of countries came together and like we're gonna uh, come together do some science and well that's kind of what tomorrowland is kind of about in terms of uh the uh, you know the the city itself there uh the movies you know we've already gone through uh is about a lot of things or you know Maybe other things, depending on, I guess, your interpretations. But in terms of the, I guess, the original uh, uh, premise of the of the city itself, you know, in the context of the the film, it's very much in that same spirit. So that was kind of an interesting sort of uh, thing I kind of got to think about a little bit while I was, uh, you know, watching the movie there. So just kind of wanted to bring that up. Uh, didn't know where to sort of fit it in you know, so far in the discussion. So just talk, talk, tacking it on here. At the end, right before? No, right before we do our palate cleanser thing after we've all been arguing for several <laughs> hours. Hope the galaxy's favorite game show! Woo! Yay!
Hey everybody, welcome to the Galaxy's Favorite Game Show. We got lots of uh, contestants today, we got our guest judges, we got our various points being racked up, and everybody's going to get something here, I think. So let's go ahead and get started. The first prize is the Everybody Loves Robots prize, which goes to Athena and the various uh, cyborgs and robots and uh, the, uh, how is it pronounced? Uh, the Audio animatronics. The audio animatronics. Uh, so what do they win, Kaplan? They win what all audio animatronics eventually win, which is a nice long retirement of chasing each other around in an endless loop on Pirates of the Caribbean. Excellent. They get to swing some swords. That's pretty fun. Hmm. Our second prize is the To Die is Logical prize, which goes to Nix for a cynical embracing of the end of the world. What does he win, Max? He wins what his final wish was. Bollocks. <laughs> Well, uh, I, I'm not sure how we're going to be delivering that to him, but uh, yes. <laughs> Our uh, third uh, prize is the uh, Get Off My Lawn prize, which goes to Frank for his attempts to get Casey to leave him be. What, is, uh, what does Frank win, uh, Gepwin? Frank wins some very low-to-the-ground, bright white barriers that you can put around your lawn to let everyone know that if you go in there, there's a potential random chance you might be killed through lethal injection. I'm not sure where we're going to get the various supplies for these uh, prizes this week, but we'll see what we have in the back. Um, oh, we, we just need the lines, not the actual lethal injection. Got it. Okay, cool, cool, cool. Our uh, fourth prize today is the Useful Death Prize, which goes to Athena for using her final end to stop the tachyon machine at the monitor. What does she win, Max? Athena wins an all-access vacation with Data and the Iron Giant and every other robot that has had to suffer the indignity of being the one who dies so the meat sacks can go on living. I would say something about Bender, but uh, well, last I knew he was still alive. So uh, enjoy your, 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 your data plan, uh, Athena. Our uh, fifth one here is the Z-Rust Prize, which goes to the Tomorrowland City in a very much more literal format this time as... You know, the optimistic future of decades past sure has gotten a lot rustier uh, these days. Uh, what do they win? Uh, what does the city win, Gepwin? The city wins being the setting of the next Fallout game, because it's basically, you know, retro future that has gone to shit with time. is just basically post-apocalyptic fiction. Hmm. Well, uh, since they, uh, they use some uh, lo real-world locations, that's actually quite workable. Hmm. Um, anywho, the... Uh, the next prize is a single word, which goes to Casey for seeking, hoping, and working for a better future, and thus casting doubt on the dire predictions that all is already lost. What does she win, Max? Casey wins everything she ever dreamed of, which is a world full of those who understand that even a podcast, even the smallest of podcasts, or even a brutally flawed movie, no matter how small, no matter how intended, even the smallest of acts can change the world. Here, here. Now I'm going to take one for myself here. I'm going to hand out the puny god prize, which goes to the monitor, because, you know, it can see the future, but it can't see this. <laughs> Insert explosion sound here. Yes, thank you, everyone, including guest judge, for putting up with our weird little... Uh, you know, fun thing we do at the end of the episodes here called the Galaxy's Favorite Game Show! Woohoo!
So, uh, Max, where can we find you? You can find me on Twitter, now X, at, uh, at Max Fagan, F-A-G-I-N. I also have a YouTube channel, at Max Fagan. Been on YouTube for going on 15 years now. Uh, and uh, I do um, dabble in SciComm education and space science. Um, but thank you so much for having me on. This has been an absolute goddamn delight. Yeah, and you have more subscribers than I do. That's very impressive, actually. I haven't been on YouTube for that long. I gave it up after after a bit. <laughs> yeah, my, ver- my very first upload was a shot-for-shot remake of Monty Python and the Holy Grail, and I just went downhill from there. <laughs> well, you got a, a lot of material here. Uh, and uh, yeah, I should really uh, get back to you know watching through your stuff. It's been a while. Uh, yeah, please, yes, yeah. go check out Max. Thank you for coming in and having this very interesting discussion of a movie that I otherwise would have forgotten existed. Yep, and we're coming we're coming up on its uh, on its tenth anniversary, so you may start hearing about it a little bit uh, more. Uh, I apologize for that if uh, if you want to go back <laughs> to forgetting that the movie existed. <laughs> Hmm. Phobos on the space elevator. Hmm. Space elevator? Did someone yes. say space elevator? You did it, apparently. Space elevator. <laughs> Just looking at your video list. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, uh, yeah. So yeah, you know, you know, you changed my mind. I hate this movie. It doesn't have any space elevators. <laughs> well, maybe if they do come up with a sequel, that'll be about building a space elevator. Uh, you know, on top of you know the actual main plot. But there'll be a space elevator, it'll be under construction, and it'll retroactively help this one. How I'll take that? it. I'll take it. Perfect. No notes. Make that film for me. Ha ha! <laughs> so, uh, so Gepwin, I, I think uh, I, I went ahead and uh, claimed our next uh, uh, episode, actually, already. Yes, because you were really excited to get to do a movie because, you know, the, the mid-season movie thing usually supplants our other movie go-through, so we had to skip one to... You know, do do things, but apparently you're really excited about this. <laughs> well, it, 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 sufficiently excited. It is a strange movie. Max, have you ever seen the movie The Congress? I have not. That sounds incredibly boring, but I bet it's a sleeper. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it has some dull moments. Uh, I will admit that. But uh, the uh, it's a film that is sort of a weird meta. Uh, I guess uh, actor sequel to the princess bride in that the main uh, lady, I forget her name right now. uh, uh, Robin White. Yeah. uh, She is the main character of this film playing herself. And then things get weird. (laughs) How how many movies could you summarize that as the tagline? (laughs) And then things got weird. weird. Basically everything we ever watch. Yeah, uh, true. <laughs> like the first third of the movie is, you know, it's like okay, she's you know being a uh, an actress and uh, has a couple kids, and you know, she's going in, you know, doing this uh, thing that will help her basically continue acting without actually having to be an actress. AKA, they're going to do it with computers, but they're going to actually pay her for her image, um, which I know seems kind of you know. You know, uh, anachronistic already somehow, but uh, then uh, about a third of the movie, in, uh, way into the movie, we jump forward a few years, and then she takes a bit of chemistry, drug stuff, I guess, and then gets really 
reality gets bent for a while. Let's just say that. AKA it's animated for the next like hour. <laughs> Got it. Well, I'm, I'm very glad to hear that this is not just a uh, two hours of C-SPAN. No. <laughs> Though, uh, Gepwin, if we ever wanted to do another uh, April Fool's uh, episode, that might be something to do. Yeah, two hours of C-SPAN. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> Like, oh yeah, I know this guy. He's uh, the the one from the uh, the uh, the fourth district, of Missouri. And uh, you know, uh, last year he said this. There was another th- thing, and uh, I think he has a beef with this other person Man, over if, here. If anything's going to make you pessimistic about the future. It's going to be two C-span? hours of C-span. <laughs> yep. None of those people are getting a pin. <laughs> yes. Hmm. Note to self: Don't run for Congress. I won't get my pin. Hmm. Anyway, so uh, that's what we're going to be uh, poking at next week, uh, or next, or whenever the next huh. episode comes so, out. Because yeah, we, we don't know a yet. A break. We're, t- we're on our mid-season yes. break. While well, as you're listening to this, very probably our first two-parter, I would imagine. <laughs> we'll we'll find a place to yeah. split it in here somewhere. So thank you. Yeah. Well, I'm going to be dealing with that. Well, get what I'm going to be editing. So yeah. you know. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you all for figuring for uh, you know putting up with a very long discussion that i hope you found interesting enough to stick through and next time we'll be having a what sounds like incredibly confusing discussion about ai acting probably well and maybe it's, the it's nature more of than consciousness. that yeah and you know what is art and can new art be made if everything's a copy max do you want an answer for that yes Okay, you have an answer for that. Got it. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Uh, Well, in that case, I'll see uh, everybody next time. All right. Take care, guys. It was great meeting you all, and thank you for the wonderful discussion. Mm -hmm. That's been great fun. Thanks for joining us. for being here. Next time on Watchers of Tomorrow, embrace the wonders of chemistry. have been listening to Watchers of Tomorrow, a podcast on science fiction media. Find and follow Watchers of Tomorrow on Podbean, YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, Spreader, Digital Podcast, and perhaps many more to come. If you enjoy our podcast, make sure to subscribe for more. And where possible, make sure to rate your experience or leave us a review. You may find Gepwin on youtube.com slash Gepwin and Twitter at Gepwin. You may find me, Dr. Isix, on youtube.com slash Dr. Isix and Twitter at IsixLP. Music is Waveform and Maury's Principle, both by DRKRN. You can also check out the Watchers of Tomorrow Discord channel. Make sure to share the experience with your friends, family, enemies, and alien overlords. If you feel you are suffering from transporter syndrome, please be aware that the next time you step off the transporter, that you, that is now, no longer exists. <laughs> <laughs>